welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape Inc., and made possible by Coffee by Design Rebel Blend Fund. This is a different kind of podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my effort to demonstrate the examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, You've done a 10-year career uh, sitting, listening to people, being involved in the harm reduction movement. And I'd love to sort of get your summary of all of that. Well, thank you for having me. Um, You know, I think when I think about where we were as a community 10 years ago and where we are now, we've seen significant change. Um, We've seen significant loss um, and grief and sadness along the way. And I think we've also learned to come together as a community. Uh, We've learned to embrace some new ways of thinking and approaching people. I think that, um, you know, when I first started doing this work, it was, was, there was two approaches. Stay under the radar as far as you could possibly (laughs) be because the last thing you wanted was any state or local or federal government to be aware that you were doing this work because you were like just barely funded and just barely hanging on. Um, and you're talking about sort of just handing out clean needles and uh, yeah, just doing just doing our day to day work. Um, you know, you didn't want to advertise it. You didn't want to talk about it. Uh, you didn't want to go on the news or be in the paper um, because at the time uh, here in Portland and in Maine, um, we didn't have support at the state level by any means. Um, and we had quite the opposite. And it really was like fighting an uphill battle just to just to survive and exist. Um, and it was clear in a lot of ways because the, the people who needed our services weren't able to access health care and didn't have housing. And um, and so we've seen some changes in that way. Um, but as a community of harm reductionists, I think we've seen some progress. Um, We've seen more of us, I guess. You know, there's been more people coming together, working together. Um, But it's still really hard. I mean, we're still still not there. Um, And I think for me, I thought that I could make change from within. And I I mean, I know that I did in some ways. I mean, I, I worked really hard and I built up the um, the organization and the program as much as I could, but you get to a point where you realize this really troubling realization um, that depending on wh- where your funding comes from or the organization that you represent, like that is what defines 
the success of your work. And I just, I couldn't be associated with that anymore. Um, so I think that when I look at the last 10 years of, of harm reduction, for me, um, a lot of growth, a lot of change as an individual and as a community, um, but also this really sad realization that we have so much more work to do because we're not even close. I mean, if you look at the numbers mm. and you look outside, we've got a lot more work to do. It's, it, it's been a long road and you can feel the control that people wanted when what you wanted to do was to make connection and to hear what people need and provide what they need. And instead you get all these other standards or rules or things or and you've gone from being quiet to a little louder but still there's just more death yeah and i think it's you know we we have to de we have to de this in a lot of ways we need to demedicalize mm this. Mm. Um, we need to take it out of government control. I mean, it's great to have funding and support. Mm. That's great. Uh, but it's too restrictive. Um, unless it's not. And 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 there's certainly people who can make that decision. Mm. Um, but the way that I see it right now, certainly on our local level, is that there are things that are more important to the people making decisions than the lives we're losing. And that's, I mean, that's shocking to me. It's, it's something like looking good is more important than being in the mess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of this incredible epidemic that is injuring people, killing people, wiping out families. And it's looking good is more important. Yeah, they call it the optics. That's what I learned in my 10 years. <laughs> uh, that's what they call it. And yes, that is by far the most important thing. And I just, you know, I think that if we want to make any progress, there's a couple of areas and, and there's organizations that are doing this and, and there's individuals who are doing this. But it's not about data collection and... It's not even about funding, although we obviously need that in order to do the work, but it's it's about connection. It's about ensuring people have what they need to not just survive, but to actually thrive. I mean, we can put out fires all day long, and we have tons of organizations and groups that do that really, really well, and we need them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have those, those next pieces. Um, and... And I think that's what gets exhausting after a while. That's what burnout really is, is like, I can't, I'm actually burnt out from putting out all these fires. I mm. can't mm. do it because there's, we see no actual change. It's just hitting your head against a wall over and over again. Um, there's something you're saying that you know that people need that with the strings attached and the money and the, the having to look good or the 
I don't know what the optic is, but I'll I'll get it before this is over. It, you know, that you're saying that you know they need after 10 years and you couldn't get the support to do that. Yeah, and I think that what that is is this idea of 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 loving people fully and mm. just allowing people to be who they are right where they are um and and of course that is the philosophy of harm reduction you know you can read all the all the different descriptions and examples and that's ultimately what everyone's saying but for some reason you know in in these last couple of months i've had to reflect on on my work and and what i've done for the last 10 years um that's the piece you know that's when you see people make a change in their life that feels positive for them, which is a huge component of this, us not telling people what they need, but people going in the direction that works for them and then finding happiness and uh, fulfillment in that decision. Oftentimes what I see is that next step is a feeling of connection and community. And that's just love. I mean, that that's all that that is. And, and I'm not minimizing that. But like when you, it feels so simple, like that's all that we need to do. Um, but truly, when we think about the time and resources and, and energy that has been put into addressing um, issues related to substance use and overdose and homelessness... I mean, it feels like we could just simplify and just bring this back to the basics. But then I think what gets in the way is the stuff that feels more important to the people making the decisions. Yeah, it's uh, you, you, you know that every interaction between two people has to be about love. Mm. And then something operating outside of that, some systematic set of criterias or like, we don't really like you, so we're going to say we like you, but we're going to create these kind of barriers like uh, lots of questions or <laughs> lots of hoops you have to drive, mm -hmm. get through to get to this. Uh, and the message is still the same, which is... You don't matter. We don't like your disease. Mm -hmm. and actually, if we could be honest, we don't really like you. Yeah. And, and, and so it's this idea of just tolerating it. Mm. And I think even more harmful of a message than that, it's you should be grateful. Because mm. look at what we're doing for you. And mm. you're still not getting it right. Yeah. You're still not doing what we expect. Yeah. But yeah. look at all this that we've done for you. Yeah, we've given you a pantry to go to to get food. <laughs> right. You can wait in line all day. That, that's right. You can you can get clothes at the clothes shelter, but maybe not what fits you. Right. And we could get you a job cleaning the streets of the city because you should pay off your GA. Mm -hmm. But aren't you aren't you grateful that right. we're doing that for you? Right. Yeah, it's the it's the absolute worst of the worst. Instead of 
just looking at it differently, like mm. reframe the whole thing. Like, can't I feel like if we could all just recognize that this isn't working mm. and and take the time. I mean, this is very idealistic, but, you know, like, let's all come together and realize that this isn't working and and try something different. And we we know there's models that have done just that. And we know that there has been success among communities that have addressed issues like this differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that common common theme of treating people with dignity mm-hmm. and and loving them for who they are um, without expectation. Well, and listening to their dreams. Right. And not what we think they need. But to, and then being able to create the space for them to have their dreams. You you talked about it just a few minutes ago that when people do make a connection to their what they want, what their purpose is, and they start to feel that happiness, they lean towards community. They lean towards loving other people. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea, the construct of let's just start over. Because the power over context is just not working. It's so harmful. And I think, you know, when I when I say we need to demedicalize this, I think of that in a really broad sense. Um, I was, you, you know, you think about how people have this relationship with a doctor and... Um, no matter what you're there for, it doesn't matter what what you're at the doctor's office for. You immediately are in a situation where the doctor is the right one and you are probably wrong. And I mean, does anyone have real honest conversations with their doctor? Um, and so I've been thinking about how we can, how we, when we look at substance use specifically, and we look at medical providers and there's been all of this focus on getting providers to be, you know, more providers to to prescribe Suboxone and um, medication for opioid use disorder. And that's what we need to do. We need to have all these providers. And, and that's fine. Um, however, shockingly, what they're finding now is that now people aren't accessing the treatment, that there's providers available and people aren't accessing, and they can't figure out why. Mm-hmm. And I think it couldn't be more clear. I mean, anyone who has ever had an interaction with a provider, and obviously there's there's great doctors out there, sure. but it's their medical license, it's their prescription pad, and they need to be comfortable with everything that you are doing. Um. And there are so many hoops to jump through, mm. and and they're not very kind all the time. And I think if that, to me, that's my focus right now, is how can we support and love the doctors uh, <laughs> so that they can, in turn, model that and mm. and show that to their patients. They have this incredible opportunity to spend time once a week, once a month, whatever their requirement is, with an individual 
offering them a medication that's simply just going to help save their life. I mean, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. Um, And they could take that opportunity to do whatever they wanted with those 15 minutes. Uh, And so I think that, you know, bringing the love back into the room, all of these various rooms, and just trying to get people just focused more on that instead of the outcomes and the deliverables and the expectations and the assumptions that we somehow are the experts for other people. Um, to me, that feels like where where we need to head. I love that just uh, to make the assumption that we're never, ever the expert of another human being's life. Yeah. And then how do we create this, the settings, the interfaces where people are just assuming the conversation is about love and not to be the expert? Yeah, I mean, we don't expect that from other people. I mean, we, we expect it from, you know, what we call vulnerable populations, right? Like people who are victims of abuse, people who have substance use disorders, people who have mental health needs, people who are um, asylum seekers. Like, they need to be grateful for what we give them because we know what they need. And I don't know when that started, and I don't know who thinks it's working, um, (laughs) but it's really not. Uh, And it's really consistently shown among all of those different demographics of people. It's like, no, 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 like, this is what you need to be doing right now, and I'm going to help you do it. And then the worker gets uh, burnt out because they're like, wait, it's not working. You're not doing the thing that I said for you to do. Or that I was told to make you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just doing my job. So you just need to do yours. That's right. And somebody told me, so now I'm going to do it to you. In fact, as a worker, I'm only following what they told me to do. And so don't beat up on me. You know, and it's just this constant issue of power. Yeah. And that the person who's suffering has little or no power except to not engage. Right. Right. And that, I think, is what we see most consistently is, right, I don't have any control over anything that's happening in my life, but I do have control to not do what you're telling me. I mean, and it's, I mean... God, you taught me this years ago um, that nobody likes unsolicited advice, right? And uh, I, I always say it to people because it's so true. I mean, and and, and I have two teenagers. Um, <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's like you're never going to get anywhere telling people what to do. It just doesn't work. In fact, you're almost guaranteed that they're going to do the opposite. I mean, I still do to this day. Um, and so... We have to reframe that around, you know, sort of what do you want? What what do you want to do today? Um, and I think harm reduction has gotten that on track. You know, that really is what we um, embody and believe in when we're doing syringe service program programming or we're doing naloxone distribution. You know, that's what it's about. It's about meeting people where they're at. We know that. But... It's time to take it a step further and and stop having 
I think harm reduction be in this separate bubble. Mm. It's it needs to. It's all the same thing. Mm. Um, it's, it's about it's about love again. It's not even yeah. about harm reduction versus abstinence versus right. versus versus. Right. It, it, it does. It's it's about like that compassionate conversation mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Like, what do you want to do to solve this issue in your life? Or, and, let's, and let's build your opportunities yeah. around that. Yeah. Or like maybe you don't identify this as being an issue. Exactly. And it is. I'm sorry to make it up as your issue, but it's not yours. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm clearly struggling <laughs> with what you are doing in your life. And and I think teaching those techniques to people about, hey, you need to recognize that you are triggered right now. Mm. Like this person's substance use or their mental health concerns are bothering you and you're trying to fix it because that's what we do. If something's upsetting us, we try to fix it. Um, And that's ineffective. Right. That is what even the system gets together in small groups and says, "Okay, this is what these people need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And then they send it down to the person working in the municipality who's got a 10 year grant and says, no, this is what this person needs to do. Right. And then you realize Nobody wants what we're telling them they need to do, even if it was good. Right. Because we have to stop telling people. What to do. And and we have to start listening to what people want and mm. starting from there. Um, There's a phrase you use that, um, you know, you meet people where they're at. I really, I really have been systematically trying to move beyond that Mm. and trying to actually meet people where they dream because you said it so beautifully when you started out like when people touch their happiness Mm. there's a purpose there's a yearning there's something beyond because meeting people where they're at is their trauma right it's it's the voice of the trauma and so i really appreciate it just even going back to the very beginning you said there's something that moves people. And what if we're listening for that? What's going to move you? Mm-hmm. Including, you don't want to engage. Right. Right. And I think allowing that to be an option mm. and still being there. Mm. Um, and, and stop calling it resistance. Right. <laughs> right yeah. or or against medical advice yeah. or declined you know, treatment yeah. declined t- treatment right all of these words that you've gotten used to over the 10 years mm-hmm. that you were doing you could see that they just weren't helpful they weren't helpful and i think you know for me personally what really what really just hit my heart uh mm-hmm was this summer and we in our community were forced to see what it looks like to be unhoused mm-hmm. we it was i've said this and about a bunch of different things that happened uh this year but it really was a perfect storm of the community being forced to see uh, we were, it was a pandemic, people, it is a pandemic, people were out and about more. Uh, so the homelessness that was so visible because mm. there was nowhere for anyone to go 
was even more visible because the entire community had to look at it. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of an island, in the middle of the town. Yeah. Here it is. Is an, an you know an encampment, right? And that we don't have enough resources to figure out how to take and honor people's lives. We got to give them an encampment. And couldn't I mean there couldn't even be a place in the many discussions that were happening. There was no room for dignity or love mm-hmm. or support. It was it was handled so inhumanely. Mm. Um, by the people who had all of the resources and ability to make it otherwise. I mean, it's not that hard to find 200 people a place to be that is safe and secure. Um, and so I think, you know, for for me, that's when I really m- made the decision that I actually didn't think that that I could make change from within happen anymore. That I think in order for us to be the most impactful, and not everyone, but I think, at least for me, to be the most impactful uh, and effective, um, I had to do it outside of the confines of that establishment um, so that we could start to meet people and and help lift them up to that next, that next spot. I, I'm aware of, uh, you know, this example of this is that, you know, in the time that you worked for the city, you weren't really supposed to talk about an overdose prevention site. Hmm. I almost got fired for it, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that's what I mean by muzzled, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like you talk about, a very simple statistic that 40% of the deaths of a community would change just by having a compassionate overdose prevention site. And you couldn't speak about it. Mm. And I think the piece that I have decided that was the most difficult about all of that, um, and I think I've probably learned how to do it since that experience. It's all about the way that you say the words. Exactly. I mean, what I learned very quickly is I could say, well, everyone deserves a safe place to be and no one should use in unsafe conditions. Right. That was an acceptable thing to say. But I could not say safe consumption space or overdose prevention site. And where I've come now to realize is that, and I have a dear friend who speaks of this often and reminds me of this fact is that it's you know it's really not about substance use or safe consumption space it, it's an a really it's this hatred towards poor people i mean it's poverty like because people who need an overdose prevention site are people who are unhoused. I mean, what we need is housing and sustainable housing and affordable housing for everyone who needs it. Mm-hmm. And and that's going to look different person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to not ever have to have an overdose prevention site because everyone should have a safe place to, to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it comes down to is this idea that Communities just really don't like poor people mm. and they don't they don't want to put the resources into changing that. Mm. Um, 
And that... And they need that. Yeah, right. And they there's some oppression that goes along with, I need those poor people, because then I feel a little better about what I have. And, I, and so if there's enough of them, then there's a way in which I feel a little better better that I have this, mm -hmm. even though this is not very helpful anyways. And you'd be mad if you didn't have poor people. Mm -hmm. At least I have access to health care. Well, your health care is not even close to being what you really need mm -hmm. in this country. But you're not going to complain because you're not poor. Right. I mean, there's a way in which, uh, you know, that we despise poor people and we need them. Mm. So we won't complain about the lack of economic equity, you know, that people get. You know, I, at least I have a job at $15 an hour. Right. Well, right. <laughs> you can't live on you it. You can't survive. Right. And we're, we're still arguing about 15 I know. It's... You know, so that, I mean... I apologize. I don't. This is really about your conversation, but no, this stuff I, triggers me in terms of poverty. You know, it's just well, that's like, what I mean. You know, I feel like we have to just make sure we're keeping that in the forefront of these conversations because it's really easy to talk about the opioid epidemic or top talk about, uh, you know, the lack of mental health services. You know, it's like, well, that's actually not the issue. That's the consequence mm. of the issue. All of these are consequences. Mm. You know, I've always said that if if you had to stay at the shelter in Portland, you would absolutely use drugs too. You know, like these are consequences of the bigger issue, which is poverty and oppressing people who are different, who are marginalized. And, you know, all, all of that is very like obvious for those of us who are involved in the work. But I'm reminded, especially now that I'm sort of taking this time to hopefully look at the at the broader view of, of what's happening in our community, there are a lot of people who don't know this and don't know um, these different these different factors that have caused so many of the issues that that we have in our community. Now And I think that we have to uh, remember to take the time to, to, to ensure that people really understand, because I was reminded of that um, this past year. I, you know, I knew that I didn't have a strong uh, supervisory team advocating for the work that I was doing. Like, I, I knew that. I mean, I wasn't ever expecting that. I lost that years ago when, mm -hmm. when our program changed. But I at least thought that they understood the work and at least recognized its value. Mm -hmm. um, and I was reminded this year that, that no, actually, they, they don't. They've either forgotten um, which I think is easy to do when when your head is clouded by bureaucracy. Um, or they just, no one took the time to teach them and they certainly weren't going to say, I don't understand. Mm. Uh, and I think that can be so harmful because like so many of the things that we do, 
if we don't have that foundation of understanding or just shared like this is the this is the stuff and we need to make sure we both agree that we know what we're talking about and so maybe that was my mistake i mean maybe i was supposed to have done that and made sure they understood the work or understood that they knew what um what our philosophy should be uh because it became really clear that we didn't have any support um and that and and i and i think of this summer with with the encampment and and everything that we saw in downtown portland where that was just such a stark mm. expression mm. of no really see we actually don't care mm. um and so you know for me i i what i've said to people is that's when I probably should have left because I don't know what I thought would happen after that. Um, but it got to the point where I felt that I, you know, I, I couldn't uh, continue the message that I worked by and believed in and taught to staff or volunteers or, or peers, you know, which is just that we have to care about our community and we have to treat everyone. Everyone deserves to be healthy and safe and everyone deserves to make decisions in their life that feel good to them. Um, And treated with love and dignity. Right. And that's where, that's where it's been lost. Um, I really appreciate that. I, you know, part of the doing this uh, podcast is to say thank you to you. You have worked tirelessly, and uh, I just want to appreciate you. Thank you. And uh, there are no mistakes uh, that you made along the way. Yeah. I made peace with that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) But I still, you know, like, I loved that work like Mm. I and I'm so I mean when I think about my community of colleagues and friends and I'm trying like fighting the system from within and they're like no you're you're doing a great job and now I'm out and I'm like oh you guys were so nice to me like I wasn't doing anything there was zero progress made but thanks and and of course i know you know i know that's not really true we made a ton of progress and did a a ton of incredible work together um as a community but even though i say i you know that i should have left probably years ago at least i should have left this summer and i stuck it out i i didn't want to leave i mean i felt Mm -hmm. i felt forced in a way that was actually really empowering. I mean, I really, I, I remember the moment I had this thought and I had never in 10 years, I, I never once thought about leaving mm. and things got really bad there for a while. <laughs> um, definitely thought I was going to be fired a couple of times, but I didn't ever think that I would leave on my own accord. And I was standing in the stair on the stairs talking to my husband and I just had this thought. I was like, Oh, I, actually have this power from within me to say, no, I'm not coming back. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that 
that was really helpful. Number one, it was helpful for me to make that decision with my partner. <laughs> it's probably right. good that I included him in that. <laughs> um, and he was really supportive of that. Mm. But number two, I felt like it suddenly I, I saw the whole thing differently. Mm. Like I can actually do more mm. by getting out. Well, it's it. Um, also this summer you lost somebody. That was a big deal to you, too. Yeah. Losing Jesse was, that one was really, really rough. And it was hard because it felt really closely connected to the battle I was fighting mm. with the city. Mm. I mean, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but the city had a lot to do with his demise. Mm. Um mm. They were awful to him, mm. and they treated him like he was a horrible person. Right. Um, and he felt it. I mean, God, what an empath. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. that kid just loved so hard and just, just had so much love to give. I mean, mm. he really embodied this kind of focus that I have right now when I think about it. Um, and I'm really sad that I wasn't able to support his work uh, when he was alive because I I was muzzled and I was, you know, mm -hmm. because of my work and mm -hmm. I just couldn't do mm -hmm. it or, I mean, I couldn't do it the way I wanted to, I guess. Um, and he got really, I mean, it was really hard to love him. You know, he got really, really difficult to love. Uh, this summer, he was really tricky, and uh, he pushed all kinds of people away and made all kinds of, you know, crazy thing, whatever. But he was he was not wrong. Right. Um, you right. know, I mean, the ranting emails, and he was never wrong. Nothing he said. Right was wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I, I am comforted by the fact that the last thing I said to him was that I loved him. I feel very blessed that I was able to do that in mm -hmm. July. Um, but I think that, you know, he's one of those people who, who is that reminder of why we have to continue mm -hmm. finding a way to do this better. And that's what he wanted. Well, and I think, you know, that's the message, you know, that even in his uh, pain, you know, he yearned for to be loved. And instead he got shamed. Yeah. You know, and the tr the trick of this, even in this podcast, is about it doesn't matter where people are. The only thing we get to do is to love them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I just think the more I do this, the more I realize that that really is where the answers lie, because that is how, that's where you build from, Um you know, I'm fortunate to have a lot of former clients uh, who who I'm friends with, like on social media and stuff. And it's incredible to see people who, you know, they 
allowed me to see some really dark times in their life, really, Mm. really dark times that I had thoughts of like, I don't know how this person is going to come out of this. Mm. Mm. Um, And they're at a place now where I would say, I don't, I don't want to judge where they're at, but what it looks like to me is that they're at a place that feels really healthy and um, loving and supportive for them. And what I see is that there was something that happened um, that connected them mm-hmm. to people. Yeah. Um, and they felt loved and cared for, and they were able to build the strength to to kind of continue from there. Well, I just want to thank you for this beautiful conversation. I can't... Uh... I mean, I can't think of a better way to end, mm. you know, than people found somebody that cared. Somebody was there, some kind of social capital, some kind of love. Uh, and it didn't matter who, what, where, and when, but they were there. Yeah. Yeah. I think we just need to focus on that. You know, mm. the rest can be very overwhelming. Mm. But if at the end of the day we can just find space to love each other and put the judgment and the anger aside. I think that's where I'm going to spend the, the next 10 years of my life. <laughs> I hope to hope to stay in touch with you and walk alongside you. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. I truly hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Coffee by Design and their Rebel Fund for their support to help make this podcast possible. Thank you again for being here. Take care.